from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm Christopher Calloway, your host for Creator Talks, the interview show for comic book aficionados. March is Women's History Month, and what better time to welcome my three guests, Lauren Burke, Hannah K. Chapman, and Kaylee Bales, the creative team behind Why She Wrote. Their book examines 18 of the greatest women authors of the 18th, 19th, and early 20th centuries. Some are familiar favorites, others have undeservedly fallen into obscurity. Their hardcover book is being published by Chronicle Books and will be available on April 20th. Chapters written by Lauren Burke and Hannah K. Chapman include an introduction to the author, fun facts, a bibliography of selected works, and a comic about the author by artist Kaylee Bales. Why she wrote will explore. Why did Jane Austen struggle to write for the first five years before her first novel was ever published? How did Edith Maud Eaton's writing change the narrative around Chinese immigrant workers in North America? Why did the Bronte sisters choose to write under male pen names and Anne Lister write her personal diaries in code? Also, we will learn the origin of Lauren and Hannah's first meeting, how it led to developing their podcast, Bonnets at Dawn, and ultimately their book, Why She Wrote. We will also learn about Lauren's other recent work, It's Her Story, Rosa Parks, Hannah's comic book Slumber Party Anthology, and Kaylee's illustrations and prints. I close out my interview asking my nine questions, which include their pet peeves, missed opportunities, and when each took a risk. If you like Creator Talks interviews, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and share with a friend. And now, please welcome Lauren Burke, Hannah K. Chapman, and Kelly Bales, the creative team behind Why She Wrote. Here now on Creator Talks. Lauren, welcome to Creator Talks. Hello, thank you for having me. Hannah, welcome. Hi. And Kaylee, welcome. Hi. Now, Lauren, you're a comic writer, editor, living in Chicago, and you were a child of the 80s, and you were promised a great adventure once you graduated from school. I think we all thought life is going to be awesome, but you became disillusioned, and you had to make life happen. So what happened? What was the moment you decided, I've got to take control of my destiny? (laughs) I feel like that's happening every day. It's just a rolling crisis, honestly. But I will take you back to my early 20s, which feels like a really long time ago. I wanted to be a TV writer, I think is what I settled on at some point in high school. I always knew I wanted to write something, and I really wanted to be a visual writer of some kind. So, you know, film, TV, maybe for the stage. And then I wrote this pilot called P.I. Jane. And I was like really cocky about this pilot, too. Like, I sent it to the BBC. (laughs) Like, you should make my TV show. (laughs) And I have to say, they wrote me like a really nice response back. God bless the BBC. They're like, this is a lovely show. Like you're a talented writer, but like we are definitely not going to produce this. This is far too expensive. There was some screenwriting competitions that my writing partner, Greg Sorkin, and I entered it in. And it got a great response. And one of the agents was like, this is great. Again, way too expensive to make. But you could turn it into a comic And then maybe we could have this conversation again in like five years or something. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. And I read comics, lived near Quimby's at the time. If anyone in Chicago, the surrounding areas knows about Quimby's, great zine store on North Avenue. Fantastic shop. So I read a lot of independent comics and zines and that sort of thing. And I had read a lot of superhero stuff as a kid and I didn't really quite know. 
how to do this. This was a long time ago too, before I you know knew anything about the comic scene. So I went to Third Coast Comics, which is where I bought sort of more of my mainstream books here in Chicago, which is run by Terry Gant. And I was like, hey, I think I want to make a comic. What do you think? And he was really great. He was like, you know what? I know an artist that you should, you know, hang out with. You guys can make this webcomic together. He, his name is Tony Maldonado. He has experience making webcomics. And he kind of like set me on the path to making my own webcomic. And then he also had like convention contacts. Chicago is a great comic scene. We have a lot of like small conventions. We have a lot of big conventions. And um, really Terry Gant. It's like his fault that this happened, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> and that was just the start. And where that all headed, well, we're going to get to that in a bit. Hannah K. Chapman, you are a comic book writer and editor in the UK. You founded Comic Book Slumber Party in 2012. It's an anthology series for female identifying non-binary and trans creators. You also made Deep Space Canine about Space Commander Greasy. And the yellow dog Greasy is also the logo for your publishing company. Who is Greasy? So... In 2012, I organized a like one night only women focused comics event in Bath where I was living as part of a literature festival. I think they were just like, has anyone got any ideas? And I was trying to get out of writing a dissertation on my creative writings university course. I was just like, I don't want to write anything. I signed up for the wrong thing. So I organized this event. And then I think it was like a couple of years before I started making the comic book slumber party anthologies and I was really interested in exploring how you can have like one narrative that ties stories in an anthology together so that was always like the conceit of the comic book slumber party anthologies and to do that I I think I just wanted to have like a character who's not like the every person because I think that holds too much weight, but like an any person. And to be an any person uh, kind of has to be an animal. <laughs> <laughs> I learned that in a talk on children's publishing, like anyone can relate to a duck, but not everyone can relate to a picture of a specific child, right? So I was like, a yellow dog should be <laughs> innocuous enough. And then just bit by bit, I think the first book we did was Fairy Tales for Bad Bitches. So just like feminist retellings of fairy tales. And then I really wanted to do a sci-fi book and I am a big Star Trek fan. So Uh it had to be Deep Space Canine because she's a dog and it's set in space. But there are so many like references in that book. It was really fun. And what was really nice about it, the artists really like took to Greasy and ran with it. And I just worked with so many incredible people who told really interesting And I think sometimes really powerful stories through that little yellow dog. And I'm just really proud of it. We were really surprisingly, we were nominated for a British Comic Award in 2015, I think, then an Ignatz Award for, I want to say, Deep Space Canine. And then the last book was Escape from Bitch Mountain, which was an ode to my favorite game of all time, The Warlock of Firetop Mountain. So I co-wrote a story on that one, which is the first time. And Lauren was in it. And if we ever did another one, obviously I'd have Kaylee in a heartbeat. <laughs> but I wanted to I wanted to write a story about what happens like when someone gets to the dungeon, like when they get the gold and getting out again. Anyway, so that's comic book slumber pie, yellow dog. Kaylee, you were the artist on why she wrote. And 
with 19th century fashion being your biggest source of inspiration, it's no wonder that you're all friends. How did you join the band here for Why She Wrote? In high school, we had a list of books we could read to get credit, and I decided to pick Jane Eyre, and I instantly became enamored with it. I was like thoroughly obsessed and still am to this day. So as an artist, and I originally studied animation in college, I basically did some concept art of um, Jane Eyre animated series, if you will, and just kind of consistently did fan art of Jane Eyre. And I think that that's how these ladies found me. And they reached out and they're like, hey, do you want to do art for a book pitch? And I was like, whoa, what is this? And I was like looking into their podcast and I was like, this is so my jam. And so I instantly was like, hell yes, this is amazing. I definitely want to. And then a while goes by and they're like, hey, people want to publish this. And I was like, what? So <laughs> that's kind of how it all happened is yeah. me just being obsessed with Jane Eyre and then getting to learn about all these other lady authors and stories has been amazing. Now, I also understand that you, like any mainstream media made before the 1970s, explain, what does that mean? I have always been a lover of nostalgia, even if I haven't been there to be nostalgic for it. But I always grew up thrifting and still to this day go so often and just, you know, like vintage postcards and the art and the aesthetics and the prints, the patterns, the hilarious quirks. I've always been super inspired by and my art has always taken inspiration hugely from some bit or another of media and everything made around that time. And again, of course, you'd be a natural for this book, Why She Wrote. So let's talk about it. Lauren, was it you and Hannah that were together having a discussion over drinks? Yeah, it has sort of a long, I feel like a long history. In Chicago, I had worked on a book called Womanthology. I think this is like 10 years ago, almost. And Hannah had come over to Columbia College for a semester abroad here in Chicago and had started a little group called Ladies' Night at Graham Cracker Comics. And that's how we sort of met, actually. So she said, hey, like, come down and do a talk about womanthology for this this group. And then Ladies Night Comics kind of became its own Lauren, thing. that is not what happened. And you have to keep the story consistent because I swear to God. Lauren I was giving a very, the- very short version of it because there were so many people involved. <laughs> Lauren was invited. Lauren was recommended to me. And I said, I'm not interested in having Lauren speak at this event. And then mm-hmm. they told Lauren. And that was how we met. Okay. And, and then I confronted her at a comic convention. And I was like, yeah. what's going on with this friends. chick? And then we became friends. <laughs> It's just, we. I was giving the polite version of our history. I can never tell which one you're going to say. Well, this is far more interesting. Please continue. Um, that all went down at Chicago Zine Fest, which I love that show. Yeah, we became friends and eventually Hannah left and went back to the UK and started Comic Book Slumber Party. And I kind of stayed here with uh, Megan Bird, who really developed Ladies Night into sort of, we had like an independent publisher and sort of a community like class almost angle. So Hannah and I have been talking about doing a Jane Austen book or some sort of project for a long time because we're both big fans. And a lot of our friends are not super into classic literature. We're kind of the outliers, I think, in that sense. But we had no idea what to do for so long because there are so many Jane Austen books out in the world. And we're like, how do we tackle this? I think at the time when we were really talking about it, you were working at the Jane Austen Center, which I don't know if you want to talk about that a little bit. 
I worked in the at the Jane Austen Centre. <laughs> I wore a costume. It was like it was a good summer gig. I really enjoyed it. I met some great people and some really weird people working there. <laughs> and then it was the end of our anthology life for both Ladies Night and Comic Book Slumber Party. Was We were in Angoulême at the festival and we were doing sort of this big event. We brought together various female comic creators in this huge group from all over the world. And we kind of talked about, you know, why we all did anthologies, why we all like had these support groups. It was crazy. It was a whole thing. We were in France and we we're like, what do we want to do? Like, what's the next step? Like, we're kind of burnt out, honestly. And I think it was just like, let's do some sort of Jane Austen project. We're not sure what we're going to do yet, but let's do this podcast. And we're going to see like what comes out of it, what material comes out of us. Just talking about Austen, talking about the Brontes. I'm a big Bronte fan. Hannah was not at the time. She was like, no, it's garbage. I just hadn't read it. That's You had very strong opinions on it. I didn't care to read it. And we started the podcast and we had 12 episodes planned. And then now I don't know how many we've done, like 130 or something. So we've got a lot of material. Well, it started out you were going to just focus on Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte. But then you expanded that. Your scope evolved over time and you wanted to include other writers and people that were experts on history and women's literature. Absolutely. We wanted to talk about like Jane Austen and the Brontes and compare like Heathcliff versus Mr. Darcy. We kind of loved the comparing and contrasting. It just gave us a new angle on the material and helped us learn a lot more things. And then Elizabeth Gaskell kept creeping in there, I think was the thing that really changed it. Because Elizabeth Gaskell not only was a fan, the elements into her work was inspired by Jane Austen in her work. But then she also wrote this biography of Charlotte Bronte after Charlotte Bronte died. And so she just kind of like kept creeping in the conversation. And we were like, we should probably learn more about Elizabeth Gaskell. And then as a joke, the Elizabeth Gaskell house in Manchester, England, her actual literary home, they were looking for interns. And I remember just tweeting at them one day, like, okay, I don't know if you'll take like 30 year old interns. Are you up for that? And they were like, yeah, come on over. So then we- Lauren volunteered me. I did. That was the angle. Just like, I'll help with your social media and Hannah can work in the tea room. (laughs) (laughs) They were like, we're game. Come on over. (laughs) So that's kind of how the show started expanding into other authors. So I think in 2018, Lauren and I were just talking about the fact that we had talked about so many authors on the show. It had really grown beyond the initial Austin versus Bronte concept and we wanted to explore like the links and the connections between these authors way more thoroughly than we could in like a 45 minute podcast episode and write about it we're both writers and we do approach the show like writers we have very extensive show notes but just to really like delve in in essays was our initial idea and we were going to connect everyone to Austin and just kind of show like how the web works like who influences who who knew who So we were going to do these essays. They were going to be illustrated essays. And then Julia was just kind of like, guys, you both have this extensive background in comics. Why is that missing from this book proposal? And so we reworked the idea. We picked specifically the 18 authors that we wanted to work on. And we developed the idea of having these short biographical comics, which pair with the essays. And so you get a lot of information in the essay you get a lot of information in the comic, but 
they're not saying the same thing. You have to read both of them to get a full picture. And I think that's something that Lauren and I care about because we didn't just want it to be like in the captions, like, meanwhile, in Bath, when she was this old, when she lived with her dad, and like have everything in there. So it's not like the full biography. It's a snapshot and like an introduction to the authors. And what was really exciting was just seeing those sometimes real people and sometimes fictional people that we've created to like move the plot along, just see all of those characters brought to life by Kaylee. I actually think that makes it really accessible and approachable in a way that just a book of essays isn't. Kaylee, what do these 18 women authors mean to you personally? So I knew about some of them beforehand and then learning about others was so exciting. I have always come from a storytelling point of view, especially having studied animation before and I did theater before. So I just kind of love the acting and the accessibility of connecting with literature in that way. And learning about all these different authors was so, so cool. It's like some already knew, but even to learn more about their lives and why they did the things they did, what happened in their lives and the writing and everything. It's like they are so relatable, all of them. And those that aren't as relatable, like learning about their struggles and how it relates to today. It was just so exciting. It was so exciting. I just would get so excited when the script is being written and now you get to start drawing and you know starting to do the designs and then eventually going into the final it was just so fun to see it come together like that and just learning about each of them was really the best thing about this for me and I even still get excited just reading and looking at the book I'm like oh this is so cool you know (laughs) I think today some might overlook these authors because the books were written centuries ago and the social norms are very different. But I think making this book to appeal to YA readers, older readers, is a fun and informative way to reintroduce these women with the bios that you mentioned. And you have a quick facts page and a little bibliography of their work. And then you have the comics. So it appeals to people on many different levels, just from a fun graphic novel to really learning something about each of these writers. And you mentioned that you picked 18 specific ones. What was the reason for those 18? Was it, as you were saying, were they connected in some way that one kind of leads to another? Initially, there was almost like a six degrees of Jane Austen element. Francis Burney inspired Jane Austen, who then inspired Elizabeth Gaskell. So you'd see like all of these threads. But then we also wanted to talk about just the literary threads, do a little bit of literary criticism. So one of my chapters is about the Gothic and like why women of this time in particular were writing about monsters. What are they trying to say about their own lives and maybe the control that they don't have over their own lives? Women like Mary Shelley and Charlotte Bronte are doing some very, very similar things in their work. So just trying to connect those threads as well. But it's hard because we've covered way more than 18 authors on our show. It was very difficult. Like there are some that didn't make the cut because of the connections. And also maybe we want to use them later in a different framework as well. This will be great for readers to have a chance to discover these writers or rediscover them if they read them back in college and they don't have time to go back like a lot of us reread these books and they can also find out the struggles that they faced and i think a lot of people could probably appreciate them and even relate today to some of those struggles can you just Mm. illustrate for me a few of the struggles that these women authors had back in the 19th century 
the chapters are each broken up thematically and in one of the chapters we explored the kind of responsibility that women have to protect themselves when they're publishing because other people weren't going to do it for them which I think maybe was not true necessarily of male writers in the same way Uh, so that chapter looks at Louisa May Alcott, Beatrix Potter and Frances Hodgson Burnett and they're all known for being children's authors predominantly but what they're not known for is being absolute fool busters in the bank they were so rich they made so much money and they were leading the way in terms of like patenting and copyright law the comic about Frances Hodgson Burnett is all about this court case that she went over which changed copyright law for authors so that you couldn't just make a play based on their work without permission which hadn't been done before and that was huge and Beatrix Potter painted Peter Rabbit the the doll of him and this is something that her publishers weren't doing and so she was dealing with like a lot of copycats and a lot of people kind of reproducing her stuff and she was like well that's my money and she was saying that at a time where for someone not all of our writers in the book are wealthy but in the case of Beatrix Potter she did come from money and so I think for her family there was an assumption that she didn't need the money so why would she care if people were stealing it but she was like I want to be independent and that was her driving force and it's okay to talk about women writers as wanting money and wanting success and wanting fame they weren't all just sat at home doing it as a hobby and I think that is a way that they're framed often and so working on that chapter and working about fame within one's own lifetime which was the angle for the Louisa May Alcott comic who hated it and she was like the most famous woman in America after writing Little Women and so it's exploring like maybe a different angle not just I wrote a book and then I died of consumption. But all of that was really like empowering too I mean just to think about for us today like because I think there is always a balance between any artist trying to stay true to your work but then also trying to be a business person and Mm -hmm. make money and I think especially a lot of women I mean I really struggle with it a lot of my friends who are in this business like we really struggle with it a lot I think doubly so is podcasters as well right (laughs) it's like nice hobby and you're like cool thank you so much Totally. I mean, even with the Beatrix Potter one, because she illustrated that, you know, on her own too. And Mm. so dealing with other people trying to do copies of her work and she's like, one, it's not as good. Two, these are my not only like emotional connection to these characters, I made them, nobody should be profiting off of really bad versions of them, you know? And so seeing her put so much work into iterations of even just the Peter Rabbit doll it was just so fun to see that and with Louisa May Alcott she originally was writing adventure stories kind of swashbuckling heroes that kind of thing and publisher was like "Mm, like write something that little ladies will like you know Mm. she's like okay fine you gotta sometimes choose between what you really love to do versus what you you still like to do but you're not as into but maybe it's gonna make more money you know and just seeing that even back then I mean every story in this there's really the laws the speech the looks are different but I mean every single one of the stories has something relatable to a person today 
and people may read this and say, well, you know, that was back then. We're in the 21st century. I can't believe that happened. But the struggle continues today. 21st century, here we are, and we're discovering things every day that come out in the news, through social media. You're shocked that this is going on. You can't believe it. But yes, it is. And you just think things are better now, and they're not. It's very clear. It's getting better, but it's still not there. And since you're all creators, writers, artists, what struggles have you faced in comics specifically? Definitely the struggle of having art as a hobby and just generally being so underpaid for it. Like people asking for art and then being like, um, does $15 sound good? Oh, man. And then when you do request what your art is worth, people are like, oh, wow, way too expensive. Or they just don't contact you ever again. That kind of thing. Dealing with self-worth versus just the worth of your work and how much the arts, it's literally everywhere. But people are like, oh, you know, I'll give you $5 for this because it's not a real thing, they think. You're not working an office job. You're not doing this. But it's like art is literally everywhere you look. And I'm working on it. I'm putting work into it, you know. And so it's like that is definitely a struggle that I have faced, continue to face. And I know that like authors in the book did too, for sure. It's got to be doubly a difficult in the age of the internet because people can just swipe your images. Before, if a book was coming out, you wouldn't see the book until it was on the stand or you read it in some other physical media. But now... If someone wants a piece of art, they swipe it and use it as their own. They can do that. Totally. Other examples. I relate to everything that Kaylee was just saying to that pivot when you are trying to go from hobbyist to professional. And then, I mean, this happens with writers, too. I think people are like, well, you enjoy doing this work. You should want to do it for free. (laughs) (laughs) Not realizing how much work goes into it. I struggle in one particular area where, you know, I'm a woman of color and a lot of times I get approached to write things that are about race, uh, which I love doing and I have done, but also I don't want to be tokenized. You know, I want you to come to me because I hope you enjoy what I write. I just don't want to be the name on the list. Like, well, there's a black girl we can ask her for X, Y, Z. So that's something that I'm Just trying to figure out those boundaries, I think, right now with uh, various publishers and whatnot. It's just very difficult. I think that's sad, too. Lauren's a fantastic writer. And if you're just coming to her to write about one thing, then you're losing out on all sorts of insight and just like ideas and imagination that she could bring to like all of these other topics. But unless she's writing about activism, like Mm -hmm. not interested. Yeah. Which sucks. But again, that's something that we saw with Susan Farr, right, in the book. I actually found that the scariest things about writing the book. It was hard at times just relating to it so much. It's hard to not feel just sad about it because some of these authors were living in the 1700s. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, like, no. <laughs> come on, that's a little depressing. Um, I wrote a chapter on perseverance, which is something that uh, has been a struggle, I think, It relates to the hobbyist stuff, but also just when something isn't your bread and butter paying job, but you want it to be, you have to push through and you have to push through loss and you have to push through ill health, like the worst health, and you have to push through moving house or just not feeling yourself, not thinking that you're up to it, not trusting yourself after something's come out, you know, self-promotion is exhausting. Actually, I think that's something that none of the ladies in the books ever had to reckon with in the way that people who create today had to. And I would love to know how Jane Austen 
or the Brontes would have coped with social media because I don't think they'd have liked it it's awful pushing through and kind of having that light at the end of the tunnel where you have something to say and maybe you'll get the opportunity to say it at some point not giving up before that happens definitely is that too sad (laughs) no that's very good advice not only for people creating comics creating podcasts but even at work because I've learned that unless you promote yourself unless you promote your ideas no one else really cares more than you do so you really have to step up and let people know what you're doing what you're contributing either as a work of art or even at work no one else will do that for you so true I mean I always say this to anybody working an office job, any kind of job, you never get a raise unless you ask for it. Yeah. (laughs) The people who are giving you money, they don't want to give you more money out of the goodness of their hearts, which is, I mean, you could love them and it can be a great relationship, but you always have to ask for what you want in life and in work, mainly in work. (laughs) But yeah, it's crazy. Working on the book really helped me with that. I think every appraisal I've had since working on Why She Wrote, I've just been like, how do I get as much money as I can during this nine to five? I don't necessarily mm-hmm. want a promotion. I just need to know, like, what can I do to make you pay me more? This nine to five <laughs> technical side hustle. Thank you. Oh, completely. Because I work a, a nine to five, five days a week office job and do art at the same time and I mean, yeah, what you were saying earlier, working through all of it. I mean, doing the book and the office job at the same time was crazy. A lot of late nights, Mm. but it is so worth it in the end to hopefully have that art be valued just as much as the administrative work that I do. You know what I mean? It's like I didn't go to college for administrative work, but I get paid so much more more. (laughs) for the administrative work that I do than the work that I study for, went to college for, Mm. have done my whole life put my blood, sweat, and tears into. Before we get to the fun questions to ask all my guests the first time we meet, the nine questions, let's talk about some of your other work that came out recently and other projects you have besides Why She Wrote, which is coming out April 20th. Lauren, you recently released a book called It's Her Story, Rosa Parks. I actually used to work at this publisher in licensed publishing. So I was a licensed children's book editor for a bit. And it's funny because I had left, I've done some freelance work with them. And then one of the editors came to me and she was like, hey, I'm looking for someone that writes comics, like bio comics about historical women. And I was very slow at first. And I was like, okay, I can get you a list of names for some people. (laughs) I remember even talking to Hannah about it. And Hannah was like, you do that. (laughs) You're like, you do. (laughs) I do do that, actually. They had a series of historical women that they wanted to tackle. Uh, Rosa Parks is who I went for. And that was kind of difficult because there's so many books on Rosa Parks. There's a thousand comic books on Rosa Parks already. So I read as many as I could. We do this with the show and we did this with why she wrote of just trying to find a different angle on her, you know, say something that had not been said or sort of dispel some sort of misconception And the thing I really wanted to talk about with Rosa Parks with this book, and this is a graphic novel that's for like six to nine-year-olds, about that age range, was her other activism. I think we all sort of know about the Montgomery bus incident, but we don't know about this like long lifetime of service and her commitment to like voting rights. And that's still going on today, right? So I mean trying to sort of connect Rosa Parks almost with what Stacey Abrams is doing in Georgia. So that was sort of my goal with the book. 
and that came out in the U.S. around Christmas time, and it's coming out in the U.K. right now in May. So yeah, that's available all over the place. Amazon, bookshop.org, which we've been promoting quite a bit. It's a great little book. I had a, a lot of fun writing that and writing for that age category, actually. That was it was really difficult because you're like, wow, I've got to explain systemic racism in just a few panels, mm-hmm. <laughs> a yeah. few pages for this age range. This is going to be difficult, but I hope I did an okay job with that. <laughs> Kaylee, you do book cover illustrations, character designs. You have an online store with merchandise bearing your designs, prints, pouches, and skins. The Mrs. Birthday is coming up, and I know some of these would appeal to her. Prints and pouches and things for Two Buck Chuck, Pinot Noir in the Boudoir. So tell me about that. Even growing up, I was looking for the side hustle and working a billion jobs. And I will do anything with my art if I can make money from it. (laughs) (laughs) And there's definitely like why she wrote is such a passion project. And I so much enjoy that. And then I also do label commissions. Like I did some wine labels. I've done family portraits. Uh, pet portraits. It's like drawing is something that I know I do every day and I've studied for it. And so I'm like, if I can apply that in any way, I 100% will. And I do. Some of them are for fun and then some of them more for profit. And the balance of that is interesting. But with my little shop, it's fun to just kind of sell stuff that I really enjoyed making and other people kind of connect with too. With those wine ones, I live in the wine country in Central California. Again, a love of older classical art. And so kind of remaking those for modern wines like Two Buck Chuck and that kind of thing was really fun. And that's something I always enjoy to do with my art. And you also have a design, FOCD. Yes. So I was diagnosed with OCD in college, actually. It kind of set in really quickly and I had no idea what was going on because the idea of what OCD is is so different from what it actually is and what you actually experience. I definitely would love to do more projects with that going forward because I know how much I would have benefited from knowing what OCD really was. It's not just about organizing things. It's not about being particular. It's so much more about just being afraid of everything all the time. Occasionally that will show itself in organizing things and trying to control your environment, but sometimes it doesn't. I think that was just such a crazy time in my life and being able to overcome it and learn what it actually was and be like, I'm okay, I'm not going crazy and trying to let other people know. My best friend in college, before I knew I had OCD, she had OCD, I was able to learn so much from my therapy and going through it that I was able to help her out too. And that was amazing. And I just know, yeah, I I mean, I would love to do more with that in the future, but just getting the knowledge out of OCD isn't what you think it is, you know, so more people can kind of get a diagnosis quicker and not have to be like, what is happening to me? I see a great graphic novel there. I think that's something would be a great project to teach people about this because there's always misconceptions about mental health, what the symptoms are that you were talking about. And people have a certain perception from what they see on TV. But to really, when you dig into it, many, many, many people are afflicted with some form of it. There's varying degrees. You know, it's not like an on and off. We're all trying to cope and get through this thing called life. Uh, <laughs> if I quote yeah. Prince there, a lot of people could relate to the struggle with mental illness and uh, the varying degrees of it and how you function. So I think that's a great project. Definitely. I know it is so funny because obviously I deal with that every day. And I did a few projects in the past, mostly as a PSA, because I was like, there's not enough out there about this. 
And so I did a few of those in the past, but I definitely would love to explore more of that future for sure. I hope so. Do you have podcasting coming up, Hannah and Lauren? We do. For our show, we do these read-alongs usually twice a year. So we take a text and we read it with our Facebook group. And then we also get on experts for that author or that genre to come on and talk about the text. So we're reading The Blue Castle right now. Kaylee's fave. I oh, mean, yes. If someone wants to commission us to do an adaptation of The Blue Castle, I feel like we're all in. Oh, <laughs> oh totally. Yeah. I've already done fan art of it. It's such a beautiful book. So we are actually getting ready to tape the interviews and put those episodes out in April. And, and this is going to be under Bonnets of Dawn? Bonnets of Dawn. Mm-hmm. Now, is that going to be weekly that this comes out when it returns? We're sort of doing these like mini seasons. We're always tinkering with the format of the show, trying to figure out what works best for us and then what works best for our audience. We'll do the Blue Castle miniseries. And then we'll have another miniseries that's sort of all centered around a theme, essentially. So it's kind of like the book, in a sense. We kind of group everything together. We're going to be talking about activists, or we're going to talk about scandals in literature, that sort of thing. Now, I have to ask, since you're looking at a season-type release as a podcaster, I'm wondering, do you see any drop-off in listeners when there's that gap between seasons? We actually don't. We were afraid of that. First two years, we were podcasting furiously, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just weekly, just pumping out content. And then we would sort of sometimes, I know I would get lost almost, just the schedule and just the pre-production, all that good stuff. So now we've taken a concerted step back and we really talk about what does the season look like? Who do we want to get on the show? What are sort of the themes that might feel relevant to what we're talking about today? Just thinking about a Harriet Beecher Stowe, Lord Byron episode that we did a while ago that really related to like everything that was going on with Me Too. Because we do like to make all of the material feel relevant to what's happening right now. So our audience has been really down for it. So that's been a relief for us. And then if there's any way for us to also tie in book research with the podcast, Kill Two Birds with One Stone, that's always great. Totally. Do you have an editor for your podcast? Does someone help you with production of it? Yeah, her okay. name is Lauren Burke. No. And she was. <laughs> I do like kind of the rough cut. My husband actually is an AV engineer, like by trade. That is what he does for a living. So um, yes, my husband, John Craig, is responsible for so much work on this end. <laughs> I'm jealous. Because <laughs> for me and most of my- It's a time my... suck. Oh, oh my God, it is. For me and most of my fellow podcasters, it's- you know, it's ourselves. It's a mm-hmm. lot. It's a lot. Yeah. My daughter wants to start doing a podcast. I have to follow up with her. She says, how do you edit? I said, very carefully. Why? Who wants to know? She goes, me. I said, oh, okay. Well, I <laughs> yeah. wish you luck, but it's going to take some time. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But hey, if she wants to do it, go for it. I said, you have one listener for sure already. I'm on board. <laughs> 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 well, now I have time for the fun questions. Why nine? Nine is a number that symbolizes the finish, the finality, so that's why I picked nine. So, for recreation, when you can relax, what do you like to do to relax for recreation? I'm a gardener. I really like gardening. I'm like suddenly have become into birding and gardening and nice. hiking. All of that is how I decompress now, actually. I love birding and hiking. I don't do it enough, but I had a little bit of a naturalist uh, streak when I was in college because we had a lot of uh, nature classes and California ecology classes, and I got so into it. And 
I'm really boring also, and I literally love to draw so much that when I have leisure time, I usually draw. (laughs) I usually watch television or movies and then draw what I see on the screen or just whatever I want. I liked your WandaVision art. Thank you. Yeah, that's definitely the kind of thing I do. It's like whatever I'm enjoying at the moment, I'll draw it, you know, instead of what I'm commissioned to draw or whatever, I'll be like, this one's just for me. (laughs) Uh, I like to do historical (laughs) reenactment. I do. I always get really embarrassed talking about it. I think it's really cool. I live in a country that has a lot of just castles in it. So make the most of them, I guess. I haven't done it in like two years. (laughs) COVID really just knocked that hobby on the head. So now I just play Catan online. That's all I do. (laughs) (laughs) Now, what was your favorite birthday and why? Mine links to my last answer. Can I say it? Yeah, yeah. So my favorite birthday was my brother's birthday because my birthday's in February and it always sucks. The weather's always rubbish. But my brother's birthday is in May. And he used to get taken to the castle. <laughs> We'd play knights and princesses. And nice. I was the princess. They'd do all of the jewels and tournaments. And my mum would make little cardboard and tinfoil swords. And what? yeah, we'd oh, go to Porchester Castle, which is down the road from me growing up. And oh. we'd like get crabs from the moat. That's my brother had the best <laughs> birthday ever. Thanks, mum. Thank you. That is magical. That's really good. <laughs> this is a hard question. Okay, I'm going to throw this one out there. I feel like I don't remember too many birthdays. So my 30s has been marked by a series of near-death incidents, which could fill a whole other podcast. (laughs) But I will say I had a pulmonary embolism a few years ago, uh, which was one of my many near-death experiences. And it was like the month before my birthday. And so I finally got out of the hospital and I was like, I'm going to take a vacation. And I took money out of, I don't recommend this, by the way, <laughs> took a bunch of money out of like my retirement. And I just went on like a crazy, I mean, I saw you, Hannah, I went over to England. I went to Torquay, which if oh anyone's British and they're listening to this, they're going to like roll their eyes, but it was on the water. I stayed in this great hotel. I sit in a series of great hotels and just ordered so much room service and went swimming oh. every day and just <laughs> went that for it. Magical. Yeah. Just go for it. I have a weird birthday, too, where it's on December 30th, so it's mm. right next to Christmas, mm-hmm. and so doing any sort of birthday party growing up and even as an adult was literally impossible, because then you also have New Year's the next day, so it's like, yeah. what, I'm going to party two days in a row now. So If you my... are, Lauren. <laughs> yeah. Lauren I... with it. <laughs> totally. On my 21st birthday, I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to try to invite anybody. I'm just going to do exactly what I want to do all day. I booked a hotel room to myself and I just went around this adorable little town near me called Solvang. That's like a little Dutch town. It's so cute. I went shopping, got my nails done. um, And then I went to the hotel room and read a book and took a bath. And I was like, this is it. Got myself some bubbly. I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this every birthday. And now I, I do that every birthday. I just do whatever I want all day and do a hotel room. That sounds good. I have to correct mine. Just I realized that my fiance will listen to this and he proposed to me on my birthday last year. And that was (laughs) the best birthday ever. (laughs) Sam, I love you. Thank you for that birthday. That's beautiful. (laughs) Well, I'd love to go away for a day on my birthday and just check into a hotel. But I think my family would be a little hurt by that. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh gosh you know what it's your day one day a year you know yeah that's what i say now thinking back to middle school age what posters or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall oh wow oh my i had a whole collage i was convinced i was going to go into fashion and um so i had a poster of breakfast at tiffany's i had a vertigo poster because i was still into art at that time too mm-hmm. And then I subscribed to every single fashion magazine on the planet. Mm -hmm. And so a huge stack would come every month and I would just clip out with scissors everything that I liked and I'd paste it onto my wall. And so eventually the whole wall was just little magazine clippings. I had a huge stack of all my favorite Vogue and Teen Vogue and Seventeen magazines near my desk. Yeah, that was the whole thing. But definitely my wall was covered with magazine clippings. Oh, man. I also had Sassy magazine clippings. Love Sassy. R.I.P. Sassy. That was definitely all over my wall. I also had, side by side, I had this really elaborate unicorn piece on my wall that, Kaylee, you would love because the colors were to die for. Oh, my God. I'm so (laughs) into it. Next to it was the first poster for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. I just had one poster on my ceiling because I had a cabin bed and it was just a really, it was huge. And it was just Orlando Bloom's head. And I would just (laughs) lie in bed and just look at those sweet, soulful Legolas eyes and just, he wasn't Legolas in the poster, but. But you knew it was him. Just like he was tucking me in, giving me a little kiss on the forehead. (laughs) that's beautiful that is beautiful now this is my island book question where you're stuck on a deserted island you have one book to read and it's just for pleasure it's not about survival so if you could only have one book or comic or a related set i'll even allow what would that one book be i would take why she wrote and i would just spend (laughs) the rest of my life fretting about the historical inaccuracies and mistakes i've made that would keep me so occupied oh very true just forever So I think that's the best bang for my buck. (laughs) (laughs) I might uh, finally finish Middle March. That might Mm -hmm. get me to finish Middle March. I feel weird saying that George Eliot is in the book, but I did not write about her. (laughs) Hannah did, who has absolutely (laughs) read Middle March. I love Middle March. Uh, This was easy for me, Jane Eyre. I Mm. could reread that book a billion times. I mean, I was listening to the audiobook the other day and still enjoy every moment of it. Now, when you're relaxing off the island, of course, this is reality now. What is your beverage of choice? Beer. Beer really? with wine. I always see you recommending wine because, you know, you're in wine know. country. I know. I do. I Yes. And trust me, I love wine. But I feel like when I'm just chilling at the end of the day, I'm not doing anything with a meal or anything else. I literally grab a bottle of, what is it, Pacifica or something like that, and a lime and living on island time. <laughs> I will drink whatever Inspector Morse drinks. I think the happiest I've ever been (laughs) is going to Oxford. My husband and I went on like an Inspector Morse pub crawl. Hmm. It was just my favorite thing. Anything that Morse is drinking, I'll drink. I would just drink a lot of coffee. Lauren has this one great mug that she won't give me. She keeps being like, you can just get it from me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's my favorite mug. Yeah, just coffee in that idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we used to drink here a lot more of what uh, Rumpel the Bailey would drink, the uh, Eau de Thames or the Claret, but <laughs> now, it's just, <laughs> now it's just a Manhattan if we want to feel fancy or an old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. 
Guilty pleasure. What is your guilty pleasure? It doesn't have to be a beverage or a food. It could be anything for pleasure, you know, reading, movie, whatever. Well, I think my guilty pleasure is something I share with Anna. So I think we love watching The Real Housewives of New York together. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, real. gosh. Okay. Wow. We have very deep conversations after having <laughs> these Real Housewives really inspired conversations after and yeah. wine as well well my number one guilty pleasure is the film cats released in time for christmas 2019 oh, fantastic film yeah. if anyone would like to reach out to me i have a 42 slide powerpoint presentation about the film <laughs> which i am just ready and willing to deliver i did it at work i like slotted in some time i booked in a meeting i did it for my work colleagues i did it for my friends over christmas i will do it for you just um, get in touch. Spread the gospel. <laughs> the good word of cats. <laughs> I would say my guilty pleasure, where I do actually somewhat feel bad for it, but I do it anyways, is my basically 10-step skincare routine. I'll do it like once a week. I'll take a decadent bath, usually with a beer, and then do a 10-step skincare routine. And it'll take me like an hour. And I'm like, I'm sorry but I need to do this. <laughs> okay, are you going to share the steps or are you just leaving it like that? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> there's exfoliating. There's a double cleanse. There's a face mask. There's a serum, two different, sometimes three different types of lotions. Sometimes there's a little eye patches that are like mini masks, but just for your eyes. Yeah. You know, just changing it up based on the, um, on the needs, you know, <laughs> It's oh, so funny. I don't know why that's so funny. <laughs> As the mother of a toddler, I'm like super jealous. <laughs> You're like, oh. I want to have a sleepover with Kaylee. All my little tinctures and mm. bottles and everything. <laughs> now, my next question, what is your pet peeve? Mine's really random and it like never happens. But if anybody snaps at me, like literally like takes their fingers and does a snap, I'll be like, no, I'll, like freak out. I mean, I'm sure I have a billion others, but that's the only one that comes to mind right now. Unhelpful feedback is... <laughs> and I think that's something from working as an editor, especially. And I'm thinking a lot about just some of the very professional projects I've worked on with like big companies. And they mm -hmm. come back and they're like, I don't like this. And you're like, okay, yes. what, what do we need to change? Like, let's yes. learn about how to talk about <laughs> yeah. to art school, Kaylee. So, you know, like just... The critique mm -hmm. process is in learning how to talk about art and learning how to talk about, you know, what you don't care for in a creative project is it's a skill. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I think that so many people don't like critique because they do get so many bad critiques where they're like, I don't like this. This isn't working. That's so different. Like, that's kind of like your weird opinion. It's like mm -hmm. critique is supposed to be what are you trying to do? Here's some steps to get there. And not mm -hmm. like, I don't like this. Well, too bad. You know, yeah. out here. That's an opinion. Right. That's not a critique. It's not objective. Yes. I once got a six page short story back with just conflict question mark on the bottom of the last page. <laughs> I was like, oh, thank you. And then I stopped writing because I can't write conflict. That's like the honestly the lesson I took from that is I just really internalized it. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't stop writing completely. I haven't written a short story since. Um my pet peeve is and this is such a babyish one as well, and it happens every day. It's ruining my life. I hate being left on red. It upsets me so much. <laughs> oh, I 
read into it and so if someone isn't angry at me I just need them to just throw me a thumbs up I don't mean to take it personally I am working on it but I will just spend the rest of the day worrying about the fact that someone has like said something and I've replied and then nothing back even if it's the end of the conversation (laughs) it kills me I just I don't know what it is it just makes me very anxious Next question, can you think of a missed opportunity, something you really wanted to do and either the timing wasn't right or just didn't materialize? In high school, actually, I almost had an opportunity to travel abroad, which I still haven't done. I've only been to the United States. I think about that so much. I mean, hopefully now I'll be able to, you know, save up more and do that as an adult. But oh, yeah, I always think about that. Ditto. Dang it. I did that too. Mm -hmm. Missed opportunity. Mm-hmm. I did not travel abroad. When I was 17, 18 and trying to decide what to do, I had saved up a certain amount of money and I was going to go overseas to do like a one year or two year film school type situation over in London, which was the plan. And then everyone was like, no, you should go to college. It's much safer. You should go to this very expensive private school. For $50,000 a year. It's much, much better. So I did that instead. And I do regret that. I do have friends that did go to film school abroad and they're, you know, still working over there in the industry and doing some really cool things. And I'm like, you know what? I should have done that. I was 18. I had the money. Yeah, I think mine, I had a huge amount of self-confidence in my late teens and early 20s, undeserved. And then that evaporated after doing my bachelor's degree and I think I missed a lot of opportunities because I stopped believing in myself for about five years it took a lot to come back out of it and I just think 21 22 I think people think that you kind of get lost pre-college but I was completely lost afterwards and oh yeah yeah it was just hard I just think if anyone's listening to it and they're going through it just the next time an opportunity comes up just say yes to that one because there will always be more but I've definitely missed out on a lot of things because I just didn't think I was good enough totally are thinking that you're not ready for it you're Mm -hmm. like oh like I just need to do so much more before I do that like even with comics I always loved the idea but I never did them because I was like I need more practice I need to do this I need to do that and then this opportunity came up I'm like well I better learn now and I'm so glad I did well given that uncertainty that feeling of uncertainty my final question is when did you take a risk something that pushed you beyond your boundaries whatever you wanted to do whatever you wanted to make you took a risk I asked my head of year at uni to send me to Hong Kong to study journalism and they said no but we will send you to Chicago and you can study fiction and I said (laughs) okay and uh, although I was reading comics at the time and I was doing a creative writing degree I wouldn't be doing Bonnets at Dawn, I wouldn't have done Comic Book Slumber Party, I wouldn't have done most of the stuff that has given me any kind of life meaning since the age of 22 that was the moment where I just put everything in I didn't know anyone I just went and it was the best thing I ever did and saying yes to Sam when he proposed to me good recovery on that one thank you (laughs) yeah bonnets was a real weird risk for us we're about to enter our fifth year of this I'm still unsure about the idea of doing a podcast Mm. (laughs) I'm still like I don't know I don't like having um I'm quite private I'm still wrapping my head around that people can go into our archives and listen to just hours and hours of me rambling and trying to figure out sometimes some really deep and like complicated things that really come up on our our show the podcast was definitely 
it felt to me like a risk also because I mean we spend so much time working on it and we don't get paid for it right we spent we yeah. travel for it you know we don't get paid for it so financially and just emotionally it's a huge risk but it has brought a lot of positivity into our lives yeah I would say I've always grown up very creative but also very practical and I think that even just going into art as a career was and continues to be such a big risk for me because of how financially unstable it is. I'm like, man, you should have been a doctor, even though I never <laughs> want to do that in my life. But the pull of financial stability is always something that I think about. I'm like, just turn around now, just go back and figure out something that could easily make you money. But you know, here I am. Well, one thing that's no risk, getting a copy of Why She Wrote. And it's great to learn more about the lives of these women. And it was fun to learn more about your lives, the creators of Why She Wrote. Lauren, Hannah, and Kaylee, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thank you so much for having us. All right, folks. So once again, Why She Wrote is available on April 20th and is being published by Chronicle Books. Coming up on the next show, my guest is Laszlo Tomasvi. Laszlo is a Silver Screen award-winning horror author and translator. His work includes Invisible Hands through American Gothic Press, and he joined me to talk about The Observatory through Caliber Comics. Laszlo currently lives in Chicago, but was born and raised in Hungary. This is important to note because Laszlo returns to discuss Dracula's death. It was a 1921 Hungarian-Austrian silent horror film that predated F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu. However, Dracula's Death is the first film to use the name Dracula and portray Dracula, although he is very different from the character in Bram Stoker's novel. Like the vast majority of silent films, it is believed to be lost forever. But Laszlo has found a rare novelization of the film, has translated it into English, as well as contemporary articles in full about Dracula's Death. The book is also illustrated by an amazing artist that we will talk about in our interview. And that comes up in two weeks. Yes, Creator Talk is available every other Thursday with the occasional special episode. So you don't miss a single interview because you never know what topics I'll cover. Subscribe to the show. It's easy. Just select your favorite podcast catcher or if you have a voice-enabled device, just say, for example, Alexa, play podcast. Creator Talks. And if you have an echo or dot, I hope I didn't set it off. To follow me on social media, I'm at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And the email address is creatortalks at gmail.com. Thank you again for spending some time with me for this interview. I'll be back in two weeks. For Creator Talks, I've been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.